Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoiseshack podcast. A few quick things before we get going. Obviously we're looking for your support. We are looking for you to join us on patreon.com forward slash Tortoiseshack. It really helps us keep the mics on and conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep happening. Now with regards to the podcast you're about to hear, just before it kicks off there is the audio. The audio only from the self-immolation of Aaron Bushnell, and um, I have decided to include it. You can skip forward, you don't need to listen to it, but I do feel it's important that we try to bear witness, we try to keep our eyes on what's actually happening because atrocities in, uh, are occurring every hour in Gaza and Aaron's protest has been diminished by much of what has how it's been reported in the media and I do think um, you'll hear a discussion in this podcast itself around the um, weaponization of your body when you feel you've nothing left to lose. So yeah, I just thought it, it was appropriate to keep it in there. But if it's not for you, just click forward now, about, t- about two minutes, and you'll bring you straight into the podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. And uh, enjoy the show. Is Aaron Bush now. I am an active duty member of the United States Air Force, and I will no longer be complicit in genocide. I'm about to engage in an extreme act of protest, but compared to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it's not extreme at all. This is what our ruling class has decided will be normal. Hello everyone and welcome to PALCAST. Uh, today, um, Helena, Tony and I are joined uh, by a very special guest uh, from Gaza, uh, Hadil Asali. Uh, she works at um, Columbia University and uh, she is an uh, anthropologist and a former engineer whose work looks at the ongoing colonial legacies um, of the discipline of geology as well as anti-colonial ways of knowing and relating to the um, to the earth in southern uh, Palestine. She received her PhD in anthropology in 2021 from Columbia University, where her research looked specifically at the development of geology in Britain and how it was uh, exported to the colonies uh, for extraction, mapping, um, and uh, eventual um, 
estate making technologies um hadil w- welcome to the show and uh, also i would like to um Uh, shed more light on 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 your CV that you worked on Israel's plans to depopulate Gaza uh, early um, in the 1960s, and I think we will going to talk about this and more and the uh, regional and global developments um, taking place in the U.S. Uh, uh, as well as in 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 Palestine and the wider region. Uh, welcome to the show and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to be here. Thank you very much. And um, before we start, this is a uh, gentle reminder to our listeners. Today is the 27th of February and uh, it's 5.30 p.m. here um, in Istanbul. Um, could you please, Hadil, tell us more about your family in Gaza? What is the situation? I know that they live in Maghazi refugee camp in central uh Uh, in the central area of, of, of Gaza, where my sister's home was also demolished? Uh, well, that's part of my family is in Maghazi camp, uh, which is in the middle area. There's mother's family. Um, almost all of them have been displaced and had their homes destroyed. Some of them are still in camp and encampments and in tents in Rafah. Some of them decided to go back to Maghazi uh, out of fear of the invasion of Rafah. Uh, my father's family, Dar al-Asali, is actually in Gaza City. Um, many of them are displaced. I have an uncle, my father's brother, who was one of the laborers who left Gaza to work uh, doing a paint job in Tel Aviv. And he was one of the thousands of workers that got trapped in uh, outside of Gaza. Um, many of them ended up in Ramallah. Some of them ended up arrested by Israel and tortured. He happened to be held for a while in Ariha and Jericho in a PA compound with thousands of other workers. Some of them had been returned to Rafah. He had not been returned. Um, and while he was held there, of course, this has been going on since October, one by one, the men there were learning that their families were being killed. Um, so it just unfortunately came to be this. Could I just jump in there? Has- Hadil, um, so the PA is running a kind of an internment camp for these Gaza Palestinians. We don't hear enough about that. You know, how are they being treated, treated by the PA there? Well, you know, he says that he's being treated well. Uh, he says they're being provided for. We keep offering to send money. He says he doesn't need it. Um, but he also tells us that everything is being monitored. So on the one hand, he's telling us that they're being held for their protection because if they get caught by Israel, then they'll be put in prison and tortured and who knows what. Um, so it's hard to say with any certainty if he, if he's at full liberty to say how the treatment is. But we're gathering that the treatment is quite good. Um, unfortunately, he eventually it was eventually his turn to receive the news that his family's home was struck by a missile. He lost his wife. He lost a... Uh, Almost all of his children, only one surviving daughter. He was taken to the ho- he himself was taken to the hospital right after that. Um, he had some um, physical reaction to that and has been recovering until last week. He was okay. Um, just this morning, he got out of an open heart surgery. Um, and the doc and he, and a friend of mine who's in Ramallah went to go visit him before the surgery and reassured us that he's in the best hospital. He's going to be treated by the best doctor in Ramallah. Um, so we just got news literally just before, um, uh, you guys called and, uh, he's out of surgery and he's doing well. 
Hadil, I wish your uncle a speedy um, recovery. Just uh, I know that your family in Al Maghazi lives to the east of uh, Al Maghazi um, refugee camp, and I know this area was hit badly by the, the Israelis. Uh, just to give our listeners a, um, an idea about the destruction and the amount of destruction and death. Um, how many, um, you know, homes and people, like homes destroyed and people um, displaced in, in, in your family? I know, for example, so my family has one big building in the center of Mughazi, um that several uncles share a floor in each, uh, in, in the building. Uh, that building was not entirely destroyed, but largely destroyed. Another uncle has a separate home. And that home was destroyed with the exception of one room that's left standing. A lot of their, like a couple of my cousins, their daughters, their homes have been entirely destroyed. I haven't really made a full assessment of whose homes are still standing. Um, but unfortunately, it seems... There's no, there's no assessment that can be made because, I mean, like you've seen this week, this week alone the Israeli military flying drones over to show how much uh, the damage is. And in a gloating fashion, yet again, despite these videos ultimately being used in evidence against them, uh, my friend Zach Hanaya sent me a video of, he's from from, from Shadi, he's from the Al Shadi camp, at the beach camp as we commonly refer to it in, in here, but um, he, he, he sent me the, the footage of where he was and it's destroyed. There's, there, there's, there's no going back to it. And... Uh, to add, we've had the Special Rapporteur, the UN Special Rapporteur for Housing on this podcast to talk about domicide. There's also ecocide happening because ecocide is when you actually uh, make the place, the environment, uh, inhospitable to life. They're pumping seawater into wells. They're doing all of these things. So even if people return, they're poisoning effectively the opportunity to actually have clean drinking water. So all of this thing, all of this, sorry, I just find, just find the whole thing. The list of crimes, Helena, as, as you know, go, is, is very lengthy. So apologies for pushing in, but yeah, it's, it's unfair to even no, ask No, I you. think that, that that's great um, context for us all. And Hadil, you know, for you, since you've studied this whole top topic, in an academic way, it must be extremely like heartrending or whatever to, to be living it. I heard Ilan Pape talking this week and saying that what Israel is doing in Gaza is far worse than what they did during the Nakba of 1948. I thought that was a very um, astute observation. This is kind of like a Nakba on steroids or something, but what you have been as I understand it, researching is the kind of the continuing Nekba between 1948 and 2023. In particular, what Ariel Sharon was doing in Gaza. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Well, let me just first say that um, I never actually lived in Gaza. So I never actually developed a relationship with all these places that are being destroyed. So I hear my elders talking about places like the Baptist Hospital where they learn their skills as nurses. And the heartbreak, watching my elders here, the heartbreak that they're going through, um, watching, you know, because it's not just about, you know, we romanticize the relationship with the land, the that we romanticize the relationship with the place. But, you know, when we talk about domicide or ecocide, it's also the fact that people have relationships with specific places on the land, right? It could be a tree, it could be a hospital, it could be anything. Um, and so, you know, just to be, you know, completely transparent, I did not, I, I wrote another piece 
um, for Insaniyat about, it's, I called it an inventory of rejections, about all, how many times I tried to enter Gaza. Um, and it was nine times since 2005 that I was rejected access. Um, so, yes, I've been researching Gaza and I've stayed persistently committed to Gaza, even though, in, in large part because, sadly, in Palestine studies even, Gaza is largely absent. Even even in Palestine studies, the overwhelming focus has long been on the West Bank or 48. And maybe some of that could be due to access like I encountered. But also, I feel very strongly that more effort should have been made to engage with all these universities that have been destroyed, all the scholars that have been murdered. Um, and, and now, I think, is the time to really push for not only engaging with what's left, but also making sure that we archive and document and continue developing a serious attention to Gaza, both in a um, scholarly way and in a relationship way, because you know this is one of the things that they do is try to make it difficult for us to maintain a relationship with this place and with the people there. Um, and so I'm just grateful to you guys for the work that you're doing. To, to go back to your question um, about this kind of ongoing Nakba, so part of what what triggered me to leave my engineering career and to basically learn how to do research because I didn't know how to do research. Um, and that's how I ended up doing a PhD in, in Colombia was this story that I heard from a great uncle. So this is an uncle that's related to the family that's in Maghazi camp. Um, he was living in Jordan at the time. And he told me that in 1969, he had signed up for, he was living in Gaza. He was in, in the refugee camp in Maghazi. He was only 19 years old and thought he was signing up for a worker program in Brazil. Now, keep in mind, for some context, 1969 is two, is two years after the Israeli occupation took over Gaza. So suddenly Israel had kind of inherited this massive population of refugees, and they had all these meetings and projects and trying to figure out how to get rid of them. So the first way that they did was they opened the road directly to Jordan, and many people left Gaza to Jordan. And in fact, there's a refugee camp in the north of Jordan called uh, Jarash, or Mahayim Gaza, Gaza camp, which is almost all entirely people from Gaza that were displaced at that time. Other than that, um, there were all these different kind of schemes of trying to get rid of Palestinians. So th there was overt schemes. And then there's what I see as another form of um, ethnic cleansing, which is de-developing the economy. This is something that Sarah Roy, of course, is well known for writing about. It wasn't just Israel. The British were doing that before, de-developing the Palestinian economy to encourage people to leave, right? So this is kind of a another way of, of transfer, of Nakba, just not quite as overt as, you know, kicking people out. So many people beside, before my uncle had been going out to work abroad, my, my father, my grandfather, everybody was going abroad um, that, that could. So he had no reason to suspect anything was wrong when he signed up for a worker program in Brazil. But it turned out that it was, in fact, a secret scheme to try to get 60,000 Palestinians out of Gaza and to dump them in Paraguay. So he was dumped in Paraguay, in Asuncion, with, um, uh, I don't know, maybe a dozen others that were with him on that trip. And there had been others before him. Um, and, of course, the story goes on from there, but uh, that's what happened to him. This is absolutely horrifying. You know, I grew up in, in, in Gaza and I, I know multiple people in Maghazi refugee camp. And, and I only heard of this when um, we spoke um, about this scheme earlier, um, Hadil, when we met. Um, you know, this is also very important, you know, context for our listeners because Israel's plans to depopulate de Gaza and force Palestinians out of Gaza 
uh, is not new. It started way um, in, in time in, in 1948 and it continued um, up until um, today in 1969. But also in 1971, Ariel Sharon also kicked 12,000 Palestinians out of Gaza and, uh, 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 you know, uh, to the Sinai. And I know that for sure, UNRWA was also involved in a project to uh, resettle Palestinian refugees in the northern Sinai in 1953-54. Uh, and I know a Palestinian who was arrested for um, uh, protesting this scheme. So there are multiple schemes and, you know, getting uh, rid of Palestinians. I want to go back in time and ask you about your family and how they became refugees and from which, you know, Palestinian town in Israel uh, today and uh, where they lived and how Nakba impacted uh, you, your um, family in general, scattering them everywhere. Where do they live today? So this this particular family that's in Maghazi, um, they're originally from a village called Qastina. Qastina is maybe 20 minutes northeast of the Gaza Strip now. Um, the grandfather of these, uh, like my great-grandfather, was orphaned at a young age and was sent to Yaffa to be raised by an aunt. So he actually grew up in Yaffa, and that's where the family was um, when 1948 happened. So the only the older two or three siblings remember this, um, but they were one of the last remaining families in Yaffa. Um, they were forced out under gunfire. There were small boats that were taking people to larger ships. So, you know, they remember this whole story of how they were sort of hoisted up and it's, it's kind of, I mean, they tell it in a dark humor kind of way when they re recount the story. Um, but of course there's nothing funny about it. Right. So they were, um, after they were removed from their ships, well, after they were taken to ships on ships and they were taken to Sinai to a small encampment, well, I don't know how small it was, but an encampment called Al-Qantara, which is very close to Suez. They were there for about a year before they were taken back to the camp set up in the Gaza Strip. And so they were set, they were uh, placed in Maghazi camp. Now, since then, of course, we're talking 1949 uh, when they ended up in Maghazi camp. Um, again, you know, many people, many of them went out to work. My The oldest sibling of them, Aziza, who's now passed away, but she ended up in Jordan because they opened that road to Jordan and her husband was working uh, with the resistance. And so they they took off. Um, my My grandmother ended up marrying and moving to Saudi Arabia. So they're they're quite scattered now. Some are in Jordan. One uncle is in Germany. Um, you know, some of their kids are all over the place now. So like Mahmoud, the 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 one in the story, because he ended up in Jordan, um, the kids, his kids, he has four kids, did not get citizenship or even residency rights in Jordan. They had to renew their residence every year. Because Gaza Palestinians in Jordan have a special a special category and a special set of discriminations. Um, so now almost all of them are out of Jordan now after he passed away. Um, two of the siblings are in Canada, uh, trying to get asylum in Canada. One is in the Czech Republic and one is in the Emirates working. And they're trying, they're, they're working to get them all together to Canada just so they can get some kind of legal status because they're all still stateless. Wow. Seats everywhere. Um, Yusuf, can I, 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 Yusuf, can I say something? Be able to, yeah, yeah, Tony, no, it's go just, ahead. It's just <laughs> the, the word that struck me is de-developing of Gaza. Again, I, again, I, Helen is going to be upset at me, but it's the truth. Um, we've seen this colonial settler mindset for, for, for centuries now. And the British, when they first started de, de 
de developing India. I believe at the time India was twenty percent of, of of the world's global economy in certain areas. By the time they were finished with them, they were four percent. Um, and you know, this is the sort of stuff that that. So Tony, no, I am not upset with you. You know, I mean, I've looked at English colonial history and the fact that actually building the empire is what constituted Englishness, what constituted the English state. So, I mean. You don't need to apologize. I, I, I know, I, mean, I, I, know, I know, but, but I bring you. it up. I bring it up far too often. Uh, it's, it's, it's. I play the guilt card all the time. But nonetheless, Hadil, it's really interesting that you, you you put it that way. That that they've that that's part of the long term game. It's it's like it's it's the long game. It's the it's you know we can do all of these other things, but we'll also disempower you and and. It strikes me that in in your in your research, then you must then look at it and say, well, why? Wh- how come this part of the history is unwritten? Well, are you talking about the de-development part or this yeah, whole the, story in general? The, the story, the story of why they've they've they, like it's never because you've just framed it differently to what I've heard. Um, most people talk about it in terms of as in you know. A cataclysmic day, a cataclysmic event. You've just framed it in a much better long-term way. Uh, why is it not framed like that, uh, in your opinion? Well, another thing that the, the Zionists say is that it was their investment in Palestine that drew Arabs from all over who hadn't previously had a link with Palestine. So they are actually, you know, responsible for the the initial like development of Palestinian economy. I mean, their way of turning things on its head is quite mendacious. Um, in addition to looking at what Tony said, I would love to hear something about the atmosphere at Columbia University, the aptly named Columbia University. Well, let me go back to answer his question. Why is it framed this way? Of course, I mean, first of all, they don't even acknowledge the Nakba, right? That this was the Arab states that told Palestinians to leave. Um, there's many, many ways that Israel has tried to erase Palestinian history, whether it's destroying archives, uh, whether it's discrediting people as anti-Semites or so on and so forth. In this particular story, well, first, let me just step back and say the de-development of Gaza is, is the work of Sarah Roy. Um, so I, I depend on that quite a bit. Um, so it's not, it's not, it's not new work that I've done. However, um, what I did find in doing this particular research on the transfer scheme is that even though it was written about, it was exposed by Israeli journalists 20, 30 years after the fact, there's still been a cover-up to what, to who was involved and the culprits that were actually involved in the transfer scheme. I mean, it took me quite a bit of work to find out Basically, when this is, ex- I'm sorry, let me, let me back up. I'm, I'm, I'm jumping over my words. When this, is, when this story is reported in Israeli media, and it's been a couple times now that Israelis have found this story in the archives, um, there's no Palestinians in this story. It's just a story of like, oh, wow, look at this crazy thing the Israeli government tried to do. And it's kind of, it's almost like told in a sort of fascination kind of way. Palestinians don't exist in this story. They're just, you know... They're just victims and recipients of this violence. However, because my story begins from the Palestinian perspective, and not only my uncle, but also another transferee in, in Paraguay, um, who I went to go interview named Talal, then through them, I find out that actually there was a travel agency that arranged everything called Petra that still exists in Tel Aviv today. 
Um, I also interviewed Yossi Melman, uh, the journalist that broke the story. He's quite Zionist. Uh, he thinks of himself as a liberal Zionist, but anyway. Um, but through him, I learned that actually the person who created the scheme was an Italian woman named Ada Sereni. Okay. And Ada Sereni is seen as a hero in Israeli society uh, for, for other reasons, because she brought Jews illegally from, from Italy and Europe before 1948 against the British and so on and so forth. And so that's why she was tapped for trying to implement these transfer schemes. Um, however, there has been a big cover up of this, not because they were not because it was a crime that was committed, but because it failed. Because in night in May of 1970, two of the young men that were transferred went to confront the Israeli ambassador in Asuncion, and a, and a shooting occurred. They say that they were attacked by the guards. Of course, Israel pitches this as a big terrorist plot was not the case at all. There's no mention of the transfer scheme. So these guys ended up in jail for 13 years. Um, and so the backstory of what happened here. So, so basically when these guys did this attack or did this confrontation at the embassy, um, after that, there was a gag order placed because, because a woman was killed. Um, there was a gag order placed on anyone speaking about this. It was of course pitched in the mainstream media as a PLO terror attack. Um, and everything that had to do with Petra or Addison, all that was scrubbed from the record. The only way that I found any of that was by going through Palestinian sources. So they did, they tried to hide this, not because they were, uh, they were ashamed that they did a transfer in the first place, but because it failed. Thank you for that. I really appreciate the, 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 the framing. Um, uh, maybe we can, we can touch a little bit on, on Colombia now, if that's okay. Um, but I also know Helena wants to talk about some of the events that have happened in terms of, um, the most dramatic form of protest that we've seen in the last little while. So we may get to that as well, Hadil, if that's okay. Sure. Um, well, as you know, Columbia University, um, which I have come to see as a very colonial institution, not just because of who it's named after, not just because of all their collaborations with the state of Israel, but because I've literally watched Columbia gentrify slash colonize Harlem in real time for the past 10 plus years. Um, and there's actually an active campaign right now called Save Harlem that is trying to push against further gentrification that Colombia is seeking. So, so Colombia, I came to Colombia in large part because I thought that it was a safe space for Palestinians. It had the legacy of Edward Said. There's a Center for Palestine Studies here. There's a, a huge number, relatively speaking, of um, Palestine scholars and scholars that focus on Palestine. Um, so I, I did not have any trouble doing my own research when I was doing my PhD. Um, however, in this particular moment, it's been really interesting to watch. Now there's a new president of the university um, who seems to be treading, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. But so, you know, so October 7th happened. Um, and then, of course, the bombings in Gaza started again. As usual, the students are amazing and start organizing protests and led by Students for Justice in Palestine and Jewish Voices for Peace. But unfortunately, there's quite a loud Zionist presence on campus who, of course, has, uh, you know, turned themselves into the victims that we feel unsafe and so on and so forth. And so the university disbanded the student groups. Now, in response to this, um, you know, the students will say, 
what's the slogan? Um, if you try to silence us, we'll just get louder, something along those. And sure enough, a faculty for justice in Palestine has emerged. So now the faculty are organizing on a level I've never seen before, which is very impressive. And now the students have created a student coalition of over 100 student groups in place of the disbanded groups. Um, so this is continuing to happen. Um, the, the university is trying to ban protests. Now Barnard, which is a school of Columbia, has banned students from putting any kind of decorations on their doors in the dorm room. This has never been heard of before. Um, of course, I'm sure you guys have heard of this two students that were, two more than two students that were sprayed by skunk water by former IDF. Uh, 18. 18 students, huh? yeah, that were affected by this uh, skunk water spray. The university has done nothing about it. The university continues to send out notices about anti-Semitism and an anti-Semitism task force. And of course, the only victims are um, the Jewish students, only certain Jewish students, of course, not the anti-Zionist ones. Um, and a complete and utter disregard for what's happening to Palestinians. I mean, here we have Palestinians being attacked. We know upstate there were Palestinians that were shot. Um, you know, the young boy that was killed in the Chicago area, I believe. So there's there's multiple actual incidents of Palestinians being attacked. Uh, whereas this, this, this issue of rising anti-Semitism, um, we believe, I believe, it's, it's purely the rising anti-Israel sentiment that they're trying to lump in as anti-Semitism. And that's, I think, the, that, that's what we're seeing now. Um, th thank you, Hadil. Uh, I have... Two, two more questions, quick questions. So we have a woman at um, Columbia called uh, Hillary Clinton. And what is she doing there? And the second question is about your career shift from engineering to uh, anthropology. And what made you decide to get into this field and do this research? Hillary Clinton, what is she doing here? Good question. Um, well, I guess... Uh I don't know if she's trying to create another career pathway for her politics. I really don't know. But she's been teaching a class at SIPA, the School of International and Public Affairs. Um, I know in the fall she taught the class. I'm not sure if she's teaching this semester or not. But students in SIPA have been very actively protesting her presence. And I'm sure you guys saw um, when they continued to interrupt her, not just here in SIPA, but in other places as well. Um, so it's, it's really, and again, it's important to remember that the Dean of SIPA that she's been going around speaking with is a former Israeli soldier, you know? Um, so this is what we're dealing with here is where people who have served in the IDF, the genocidal ethnic cleansing IDF, um, are embraced here. And it's quite, it's quite disturbing and rather unsettling for those of us that are Palestinian, um, to know that these people are walking freely among us. Um, so if I were you, I would rather shift from uh, social sciences to science, not the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am teaching in the sciences now. I'm teaching about uh, colonial legacies of geology in the Department of Earth Sciences. Um, the students are very interested in this topic. I would say the faculty may be a little less so because, you know, this is... Uh, I mean, I was trained as a scientist, and I have to say that in the sciences, you're not really trained in critical thinking. Um, you're trained in how to solve problems or, you know, how to come up with new uh, breaking, 
you know, ed- pushing the edges research and so on and so forth. Um, and so that's a big reason to go back to your question of why did I decide to switch is because I was trained as a chemical engineer. I worked as a, as a chemical engineer for several years at the same time. Um, you know, I've always done Palestine work, like organizing work, community organizing, cultural work. So at the same time, I decided to start a Palestinian film festival in Houston when this was in 2005, um, in large part because I just felt like there was a lack of Palestinian awareness in the Houston area. Um, the, the film festival was a huge success. I know it's a film festival. It sounds like a certain kind of thing, but it was actually very community focused and community funded, community supported. Um and, and it continues until this day. It's still running without me, thankfully. <laughs> it was a lot of work. Um, but a big part of why I decided to switch was because I realized I really don't, you know, I, I did, I went to school here in this country in the public school system. And there's an enormous amount of miseducation here, an enormous amount of lack of education here. Um, and I realized that I needed to go back and kind of re-educate myself and understand deeper. I mean, I didn't have the discipline myself to just do a self-study. I felt that I needed the guidance of certain mentors and so on and so forth. Um, So that was why I decided to go back to school was to sort of re-educate myself um, after having gone through the public school system here and to learn critical thinking skills and especially to learn how to do research, especially because the story that my uncle had told me, there was nothing. It It was very hard to find any evidence of it. But actually, once I got to Columbia, you know, Columbia has a certain reach as an institution. So suddenly I had access to archives and other scholars and so on and so forth, something that his kids would have never been able to do on their own. Right. Um, So they're very grateful that I I filmed him. He's passed away now. He passed away a a couple years ago, a few years ago now. Um, And so, you know, they have this record of him and we have this archive that I've compiled of not just his life, but also, you know, the things that have happened to him. Um, Thank you. Thank you. In fact, I started, um, you know, doing some research on some Palestinians who were tricked into this secret scheme just before the genocide started. And um, uh, I did not have much success. And now everything in Gaza has changed and uh, was destroyed. Helena, um, there was an important event that took place a couple of days ago in front of the Israeli embassy in D.C., very close to where you live. Um, could you please share with us what happened and then the implications of, uh, you know, an active military um, man in the U.S. Air Force setting himself on fire in front of the Israeli embassy to protest the genocide in Gaza? Yeah, thank you for um, raising the topic, Yusuf. Um, I believe this happened on um, Monday or, or Sunday. One, anyway, within the past two days. And so Aaron Bushnell was a um, 25-year-old a- aircraft um, a- airman first class, I think, in the U.S. Air Force, who apparently had been working in Air Force intelligence, which I think is interesting. We'll come back to that. But um, when after I heard about his self self immolation, it really um, aroused a lot of memories for me because I am a Quaker, a member of the Religious Society of Friends. And back in 1965, there was a very famous case of a Quaker who was also from this Chesapeake Bay area 
called Norman Morrison. And he had set out from his home a little bit north of Washington, D.C. And some of the details of this, I mean, all of the details are very disturbing, but it makes you really respect the guy a lot. Um, so Norman Morrison was very active in the anti-Vietnam War um, movement. And that morning he set out with his 15-month-old daughter, um, Emily, and her diaper bag. And I don't know, it's just the details. <laughs> um, and he went to the, to the steps of the Pentagon on a Saturday morning and he handed off his daughter and the diaper bag to a complete stranger and doused himself in kerosene and, and self-immolated. Very similar in many ways to what Aaron Bushnell did. So amongst uh, the daughter, by the way, obviously survived and was reunited with her mom. And, and she and the mom grew up with a lot of questions about why did dad do this? And actually later she wrote a, a really um, thoughtful memoir of, you know, now she finally understands why dad did this. So there's a, a couple of things about Norman Morrison's story that I found really interesting. One is that as I said, amongst Quakers and, and people in the anti-war movement in this country, there was a lot of controversy, you know, like taking your own life, weaponizing your own body in that way, in a way that um, Buddhist monks in Vietnam had done quite a lot. I think maybe a few dozen Bu Buddhist monks had self-immolated in um, protest at the war by that time. And a couple of other people had self-immolated in this country, but not in Washington, D.C., not on the steps of the Pentagon. So a couple of things um, that struck me were that um, Norman Morrison, as I said, very controversial amongst people in the anti-war movement in this country, a complete hero for the people of Vietnam. You know, the people of Vietnam just completely understood and recognized and admired what he had done on their behalf. They named streets after him. They published books about him. When his, his widow and his daughter went to visit, they were given, like, they were entertained by the, like, the president of independent Vietnam after liberation and, and they were feted throughout the whole country. That is important to remember. And another thing is that um, Robert McNamara himself, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time, had been working in his office at the Pentagon and he, on that Saturday morning. And he looked out and he saw this man on fire on the steps of the Pentagon. And he went home and he told his wife. Now, none of this came out until very close to the end of McNamara's life. He talked about this in a very important documentary movie called Fog of War, which I think everybody should look at. And he's reflecting on this. And, and he says, you know, that really made me think deep, you know, it touched me deeply. And I went home and talked to my wife about it. Um, so I don't know, maybe it affected his decision making. He did carry on, you know, he actually increased the number of troops that he sent to kill and be killed in Vietnam. So, you know, it didn't have the immediate effect one would have hoped. And I'm sure that Aaron Bushnell's act will not have an immediate effect in itself. But I think we have to look at both the commitment of this guy, you know, 
I haven't seen the video, but I've read many descriptions of it. He seemed very clear. He wanted it to be videotaped. He videotaped it himself and uploaded it to Twitch. His his point of view was very clear. He said the U.S. he doesn't want to be complicit. So just remember, he's probably active. You know, he he was probably working in. Air- Air Force intelligence and may well have had access to information about the targeting help that the U.S. Air Force has been giving to the um, Israeli military in Gaza. So he said he no longer wanted to be complicit. That's just, you know, my short take on the Aaron Bushnell um, event. One quick point on it. He, I, I did watch the video. He was very clear. It was very. It's, I wouldn't recommend anybody going to watch the video, but sometimes we have to bear witness. Um, but it, one of his final messages was it, which which is it's not nothing new. It's something we we're, we're all very familiar with. But he did put his, his final social media post was many of us like to ask ourselves, what would I do? <clears throat> If I was alive during slavery or during Jim Crow South or apartheid, what would I do if my country was committing genocide? The answer is you're doing it right now. It's not an original quote, but it's certainly something that we should all be wrestling with right now. And that was what that was his final post that he did on social media. And 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 Helena, I will remind listeners who remember the global financial crisis that self-immolation became a thing in Greece, particularly because Greece was picked upon by the IMF and the, and the powers that be to be made an example for the, the, the banking crash. And many people uh, self-immolated in front of the in front of banks to show the, the voraciousness of capitalism and how it was destroying lives. So what Aaron has done, I think, will resonate, even if right now I believe it's been largely overlooked and and conveniently ignored by many in in the western media particularly they don't want to give it too much attention because that would mean that they'd have to look at themselves a little bit too much and that makes people uncomfortable yeah they they try to frame it as he was mentally troubled you know poor guy he was mentally deranged we don't need to take him seriously you know now let's move to the next topic but I, I noticed that a lot of people in the Palestinian community have really, you know, given him huge, um, like admiration and love, including our friend Ali Abu Nimr and other leaders of the Palestinian rights community here in the United States. Um, Hadil, uh, what do you think as a Palestinian American of what Aaron did? And, you know, it, it actually reminds me of, um, Irish hunger strikers and Palestinian hunger strikers weaponizing their bodies against their oppressors? Well, first of all, it's uh, tragic. We don't, I mean, it's not something, I don't think Palestinians are asking people to do such acts. I mean, it's it's sad. Um, but what I, I was concerned, because there was another woman who did a self-immolation act, I believe, in November. And mm-hmm. people have noticed that it's been enti- almost entirely scrubbed from the media. There's also a lot of students that are doing hunger strikes at Dartmouth and I think a couple other universities. I think MIT. I forget which universities, unfortunately, because, again, these things are somehow not receiving the media coverage that they should. Um, And that was my first fear after he did this was that they're going to, of course, they're going to try to smear him. I just saw another smear from The Washington Post where they are saying, oh, he had anarchist tendencies as if that's such a terrible thing. Um, I mean, you know, there's, <laughs> I mean, I have anarchist tendencies, okay. Um, but, you know, just smearing him as being, uh, having mental health issues when clearly, 
Um, I read that he had designated his uh, savings to go to PCRF. He had designated for his neighbor to take care of his cat. Like, he knew what he was doing, okay? Like, this was a clear act of protest. I watched the video that was blurred out. I didn't, I, thankfully it was blurred out. Um, but I, I, he, was, he was very coherent and very clear on what he was saying. And he screamed free Palestine the entire time until he could no longer. So my fear is that his, that they would try to cover up what he did. I think they couldn't cover up what he did. Actually, CNN covered it recently. Um, so that's, I guess, my take on it is that I was worried that they would try to make this kind of disappear. And clearly, it, they, they did not manage to do that. And it's pretty incredible for me that um, things have not stopped in face of this. I mean, this is an active member of the military. He's not retired. He's not um, disabled. None of that. He was an active member of the military who did this in full view. Um, so I guess, you know, it just I think it just happened yesterday. So I guess we'll, it, it remains right. to be seen, like, what with the actual outfit. Not to make a comment on this particular case, but I think it's really, it's great that you've you've highlighted the fact that they can't make it go away because it's the same we use on the podcast I've, I'm involved with. It's Social media has a lot of problems with it. I think there's a lot of issues with social media, but social media is also social memory. And um, those stories can resonate in ways that, you know, CNN or, or in our own case, our national broadcaster, if they don't pick it up, it doesn't matter because something will take root on social media. And Aaron Bushnell's um, story went across the globe on social media before they even picked up on it. People were actually asking the questions, why has it happened eight hours ago and no one is reporting on this? You know, and so I do think, as again, as I said to repeat that point for people, bear in mind, you can be as critical of social media as you want, but without it, sometimes those stories would not get through. So I just think that's worth pointing out. Absolutely. I look, I opened the New York Times this morning just to see if they covered it and it's nowhere to be found. Maybe it's there somewhere now, but this morning when I looked, there was nothing. Should be front page news. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you very much, Hadil. Now, before we um, finish, I would like to quickly go back to news. To Tony, he has three headlines to share uh, with us. Um, really quickly, I, I've been amused by the, the fallout. I know no one will care, but pop culture, it matters. Eurovision, Israel is going to pull from the Eurovision if they're being asked to uh, amend their, their song. And um, this kind of nothing burger, ultimately... Eurovi maybe this is a fudge for Eurovision not to have to invite them because realistically they, they shouldn't be invited. There should be some sort of they, they should be included in the in the blockade in the blockade way. Uh, Ursula, but also they're not in uh, Europe. I uh, mean, uh, the idea uh, that they Australia aren't in Europe either, and they compete in Eurovision. Hell no, I don't know. I don't make the rules. I'm an open borders kind of guy. But um, but Ursula. Don't they play in Euro yes, Cups? Too? Yeah, they, they yeah, play yeah. in the European Cups. Like, um, yeah, we're, we're ashamed that uh, our greatest ever gold scorer, Robbie Keane, is is currently managing Tel Aviv, uh, a football club in Tel Aviv. So we don't like that either. But nonetheless, just on the... on Von der Leyen has decided, Ursula von der Leyen, she's going to seek a second term. I think it's an absolute disgrace. She has given unequivocal support to the Israeli uh, genocidal campaign. She she had done that on a, on a solo run when she did that w without the blessing of the European Parliament and she's going to look for it again. 
if you're listening to this and you're within, you're an EU citizen, let them know that that's not in your name. And then um, one thing that 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 jumps out at me, I read again this week in um, the Jerusalem Post again, where they were talking about how there's no innocent people in Gaza. Well, after 144 days of what's been happening since October 7th in Gaza, there are no longer any people that are innocent in Israel by the same logic. Because if you're not out in the streets calling for an end to this, you you know, you don't get to call it both ways. You don't get to have it all in your favour. Because simply, simply put, whatever you think of October 7th, we're now 144 days later on and you're seeing no innocence there. Well, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. You, you are absolutely the same. And then, and then very fine, final, final point, um, I promise you, um, is that, is that, uh, Netanyahu has gone missing because the local elections are happening in Israel and he's basically toxic. I think that's a good sign for people who are looking in the, in the medium term. The man is hiding because they don't want to, not even candidates don't want his endorsement. That's always a good thing when you know that he can't he can't show his face in public when it comes to endorsing his own candidates that's me i'm shutting up oh and just on that note biden can't show his face in michigan right now either important of course but he still can speak about a ceasefire in gaza while eating um ice cream just yesterday i i saw a video of him another embarrassing um video thank you very much um for your contribution and comments, Hadil, it's a pleasure to, to, to have you. And I think the, the topic you uh, highlighted is very important because a lot of people, including myself, uh, never knew about, about you know, Israel's secret schemes of depopulating Palestinians in, in, in Gaza and the fear of um, this huge refugee cam- uh, community um, just across the border uh, from what used to be their towns and, and villages. And I see what's happening in Gaza today, the genocide and Israel's aim to depopulate Gaza uh, as a continuation of this policy. Uh, thank you very much uh, for, for joining um, us today. Thank you so much for having me. I just want to share with you guys that it was actually recently, the story was recently picked up in Paraguay in Spanish. I just put the link in the chat. Um, and I'm kind of hoping that maybe more people will emerge that have suffered from this particular scheme. I'm also trying hard to find a way to get it either translated into Arabic or I've been working on a documentary um, that might be, I, I might, I'm trying to get a Jazeera Arabic to consider making a short documentary about it, mainly so that, because we don't know where the other transferees are. And, and I know now in Gaza, there's people are thinking about other things. I mean, this was before what happened now. Uh, but the idea was that if it's just if it's translated and and broadcast somehow in Arabic and Gaza, then maybe more families will emerge that will say, "Oh gosh, this happened to us too." So, ho- holding out for that. Good, good luck with um, securing, you know, funding and getting um, more media outlets um, interested in this story. I think it's a very important um, story. Um, again, thank you very much. And I would like to thank our co-sponsors, the Hashim Sani Center for Palestine Studies. I would like to um, highlight the great contribution of uh, Helena Coben of the uh, of Just Wet Educational um, from Washington, D.C. to this podcast and uh, our great um, co-host, Tony Groves from Dublin uh, of the Eco Chamber um, podcast. Uh, without your efforts and contribution, this podcast wouldn't be um, uh, possible. Thank you all and see you next week. My lonely boy. 
Small 